Jack Marlowe, lover of beauty and women, tossed by violent emotions like a straw in a hurricane. Carol, as loyal in love, as relentless in hate as fate itself. Desde que la conocí, no he podido apartar de mi mente. Estaba esperando este momento. Si por un instante ha llegado a pensar que yo pudiera traicionar a mi marido, está usted profundamente equivocado. Tengo experiencia de la vida. Scott Henderson, accused of murder, and his only alibi, a mirage, a phantom lady. Inspector Burgess, who condemned to death a man he knew was innocent. Cliff, a hopped-up drummer who held the key to a crime. Anne Terry, who entered a man's life for one night, then vanished. Give me a break. What's the difference whether my tie's okay or not? It makes a great deal of difference, Mr. Henderson. Yeah, why? Your wife was strangled with one of your ties. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We're talking incredibly disorienting Orson Welles movies. Join the sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for uh, coming on three years now, Yeah, which is insane. Wow. Um, so if you haven't made the jump yet, there is something like 70-plus bonus episodes as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films. To believe it or not, they are still coming out. <laughs> yeah. um, We're trying our best. Uh, and uh, speaking of which, we did have a lot of people make the jump uh, this week, so I'm going to hit those names up now. Beautiful. Um, we have Muppet, uh, Connor Willingham, Ryan H., uh, Ryan O'Hara, Ned Booth, uh, just Dave, Andrew Haggerty, Luke Plowman. Uh, that wraps up October. We're now moving into November. Beautiful. <laughs> we got... Um, Oh, no. Uh, Lo- Lobopes? That cannot be right, but I'm not going to try that again. Um, B-Men, uh, Jake Tierney, Mr. Liam Cook, Andrew Levine, who I think is a returning patron, Ethan Taylor, Max Lopez, uh, Allie, uh, Maxwell Parrot, Logan G., Christopher Fit- Fitzpatrick, uh, Caroline Pendleton, Coltran Seek. Uh, Seamus Malakavsili might nice. have got that one a little bit closer. He can let me know in the Discord. I saw him join recently. <laughs> Jason Keen, Jonathan Watkins. And that's everyone. Beautiful. Thank you, guys. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much for joining up. Hope you guys are enjoying uh, all those bonus episodes. Um, that's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, um, and I know that you are. I see the stats. We see you. Um, scroll, scroll down to the very bottom right now while you're listening to this and give us a good old rating and review there down at the bottom. Helps us uh, climb the ranks over at iTunes and we help, helps us find new listeners that way as well. But those are the plugs for the week. Welcome back, folks. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, my co-host... Uh, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. What's going on? I think... Uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys would have heard from us. We would have just wrapped up Spooktober. 
Oof. And we would have Big jumped month. into uh, it was a huge month of Spooktober last year, uh, yeah. And 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 this year, and I looked at next year. We got another five episodes next year. October oh, just really? gets five Saturdays. They love, That's they beautiful. love it. Um, but we are now moving. We're doing Halloween into... Resurrection. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> next year, I'm maybe. kidding, probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but moving on into uh, November, we had uh, Campbell A. Campbell join us and he brought on him to jump into sort of like the month of crime cinema that we are going to take on by uh, taking on some existential undercover cop films. We did Ringo Lamb's City on Fire as well as Bill Duke's Deep Cover, um, which was a a very large episode because uh, we ended up loving uh, and Jamie and I both watching Deep Cover for the first time. Uh, so we ended up going for over an hour just on Deep Cover alone. Yeah, we, we were madly in love with it, for sure. Yeah, so if you want to hear that episode, that was uh, two weeks ago. But then uh, last week, we uh, for the patrons over at Patreon.com, we talked about Seijun Suzuki, and we did some Japanese noir. We talked about uh, his uh, two sort of like most uh, retroactively popular, Tokyo Drifter, 1966, and Branded to Kill, 19. 19- uh, 67. Yeah, um, very strange movies. More idiosyncratic entries with uh, lots of uh, visual insanity. Tokyo Drifter, more of like a uh, candy-colored, uh, almost a spaghetti western version yeah, uh, of, of what Suzuki was doing, and Branded to Kill, more of the um, black-and-white expressionist nightmare version of it, but we had a blast talking about both of those, and again, that was last week's bonus episode, so patreon.com slash podcast for anyone who wants that one. Uh, but moving on to this week, again, jumping into Noir Vember, dudes being in the wrong place at the wrong time, lighting That's cigarettes right. with uh, matches struck off random surfaces. Yep. Dudes wearing funny hats. Sad boys with blinds, guns. Wet, right. inky streets. <laughs> <laughs> the general interplay of shadow and light. I knew that we had to have uh, this guest joining us at some point for this month. He is a teacher at USC. He's the former host of the Cinephiliacs podcast and now host of a new podcast called Framing Media. And he is a goddamn doctor That's right. of movies on film studio law and economics and all sorts of other things. I'll let him introduce uh, everything else. That is Peter Labuza. Peter, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys, so much for being here. Really, uh, really excited. Awesome. Now, Peter, as it goes, we have the guests bring on the movies with them. Uh, so what have you brought on with you this week and why do they pair together? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think like everyone like noir is just like weird, fascinating set of films. It's hard to say if it's a genre, if it's not, whatever. Like, you know, we can get into all that sort of academic jazz. But, like, right, it's like it really took over 1940 cinema as a style, as a method. And what I was thinking is I wanted to sort of, you know, I think there's, as you kind of suggested, Josh, there's always a kind of, like, guys being dudes element to it. But I think (laughs) the most fascinating part of, like, noir is, like, the weird ways that gender plays out in a lot of ways. So I kind of wanted to choose two, uh, what I'll call like lady detective movies in a way, uh, or certainly films that uh, involve women sort of at the center of the story, getting deeper and deeper into trouble, into messes. Um, 
So mm-hmm. the the two films uh, I wanted to focus on, I wanted to choose one from like the classics of American film noir cinema, uh, and that is Phantom Lady from 1944. It's a universal film. It's produced by Joan Harrison, uh, who is like one of the most fascinating figures of uh, this time. Um, and then the other film... Um, from Mexico, because I think what's kind of lost is that noir was not just an American phenomenon that then later made to other countries. It was happening in Argentina, in Mexico, in Sweden, uh, throughout uh, really anywhere. And this film, May God Forgive Me, Que Dios Me Padone, from Tito Davidson, starring the great Maria Felix, um, is a film I actually hadn't seen before, but I thought it would be really, really cool to kind of pair it with, I kind of like doing double features where one film I know really well and one I don't know at all, and see how, you know, a discovery might work out in my own sense. Uh, so that's the basic nice. setup of the two films and sort of focusing on these female characters and these two different countries that have these kind of studio systems working for them. Hell yeah. Well, I mean, that is the uh, most clear explanation someone has given of their double feature choices <laughs> that anyone's ever given, I think. So I think because of that, we're just going to jump right into it. We're going to start here with uh, going chronologically Phantom Lady. It makes a great deal of difference, Mr. Henderson. Yeah, why? Your wife was strangled with one of your ties. I'll get the murderer sooner or later. It's always simpler when they're insane. You sure it isn't sour grapes, Inspector? You ain't got nothing on me. Nothing. Who bribed you? I... Wait a minute. All right, we are talking Phantom Lady, the 1944 American film noir directed by Robert uh, Siadmak. I did not look that up. I should have looked that up. And (laughs) and, Okay, Siadmak. And starring um, Francho Tone, Ella Raines, Alan Curtis. Um, The uh, film, as Peter mentioned, was um, one of the first uh, films produced by Joan Harrison, who, correct me if I'm wrong on this, she was a regular... Um, co-screenwriter on a lot of uh, 40s um, Hitchcock stuff and 30s stuff, I guess, too, because she would have done... Um, yeah. mm. So no, she, I, I, I looked her up and I was like, holy shit, she was on Rebecca, she was on Foreign Correspondent, Saboteur, which I honestly think is one of my sort of like underrated early favorite Hitchcock films. So very cool. Yeah, um, she was kind of a jack-of-all-trades in a lot of ways um, where she started, I believe, on The Man Who Knew Too Much, the Peter Lorre version from 1934. And, I mean, part of it is, like, she gets credited as screenwriters, but more than anything else, um, I know a lot of people know about Hitchcock's relationship with Alma Hitchcock, his wife, and her role in really shaping a lot of his films. And a lot of people... um, Um, There's a great new biography called Phantom Lady by Christine Lane that's about Joan Harrison's history. Um, She was kind of also referred to as a wife of Hitchcock in a lot of ways, like because she Hmm. was so involved and, you know, was doing everything in these films. So even though she only gets credited as screenwriter, she was working in terms of casting, in terms of production. Uh, She was really a jack of all trades. So Phantom Lady, though, was her first film outside of 
his shadow in which she was really calling all the shots. I mean, this is like early in Siad Mack's career. Like, obviously, he would go on to make a lot of great films like The Killers and I'm yeah, Killers forget, is fantastic. Like, uh, Crisscross, Cry of the City. But like, this is where he's still early in his career. So it's really Harrison who is calling most of the shots on this movie. Yeah, from what I understand, Universal kind of like picked her up and stole her from Hitchcock a little bit and named her, you know, sort of like one of the first. If it was she the first female executive producer that they had at that studio? There's uh, definitely at Universal, there's sort of three well-known um, female producers in the 1940s. Um, the other is Virginia Van Up, who is at um, Columbia Pictures. And then and the other one was Harriet Parsons, uh, who is the daughter of the famed gossip columnist Lua, Luella Parsons. Uh, if you know Luella Parsons, you may have seen uh, Tilda Swinton playing a version of her in um, Hail Caesar in the Coen Brothers film. Uh, And I believe Luella Parsons was at RKO. So they were kind of the three in the trifecta. I think Joan Harrison, though, I think has the most notable career because of her role in The Shadow of Hitchcock and her kind of, she's the main creative producer behind all of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. She, like, produced, I think, 239 of the episodes. Like, Like, she really is, like the name that drove a lot of his ideas and through her, his work. And then I think her two noir films that people know, Phantom Lady and then uh, Ride the Pink Horse, which is um, Robert Montgomery's uh, film. Like those two are classics of the genre. And so she, like once you step outside of her role in Hitchcock, I think she has really a notable career. Yeah, well, from what I I read, Universal kind of picked her up because they were looking to expand on a a number of different genres. This is obviously um, a wartime production. They were a lot of the public was looking for some escapist entertainment, but they really wanted to expand a little bit on their horror mystery brand, which obviously selecting someone who, you know, shaped a lot of Hitchcock's work prior to the 40s, that was someone that they were interested in having. So they selected her, and uh, Phantom Lady was the first project that she kind of uh, decided that she she looked at the material and she liked it. She hand-picked, as Peter said, um, Siedmack, um, who I believe was a German filmmaker who had would, would have obviously just been fleeing the Nazis and under Universal kind of made B-genre pictures for... I believe it was Paramount that I read that he was making genre pictures for. And they said that he did good, reliable work, but eventually he was just kind of an ass. Uh, He didn't get much creative (laughs) fulfillment uh, making B pictures. And uh, I I read that he called them, uh, he was making Paramount shit. (laughs) It's just what he said. (laughs) So anyway, he ended up pissing off a lot of the studios that he worked for because he basically admitted that he, you know, he was an assignment filmmaker. They just handed him things and he just made them. But she actually did like, you know, some of the use of sort of German expressionist style that he brought from, obviously, his home country. And she decided that, you know, he was the right guy for this particular screenplay, um, which apparently I read that she actually wrote as well. But because she basically was given a co-writer, she didn't get uh, credit. And the co-writer was actually given sole credit. uh, Yeah, there was... Christine Lane talks about this in her biography. There's probably the fact is that she had joined the Screen Producers Guild and there were rules against being both in the Producers Guild and the Writers Guild at the same time. Um, So she basically had to give up uh, screen credit, which, you know, like I always get the sense that Harrison wasn't necessarily fighting for every other credit in the way I think certain uh, well-known auteurs have uh, made that a thing as much as she just wanted to get the good work on the screen. Right. Right. 
Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, other than a little bit of studio interference, which was very, uh, very normal, uh, especially during this time period, we're going to talk about it a lot next week, too, when we talk a little bit of Orson Welles. <laughs> but um, other than that, I think that she was um, pretty, pretty successful at, at translating this, um, this book to the screen, which uh, uh, it, it broadly stars Alan Curtis as an engineer named Scott Henderson. Um, who is stood up by his wife on their anniversary, and he um, meets a mysterious woman who is also alone at the bar, and he takes her to a show that uh, he meant for he and his wife to go to, spends a night out with her, and returns home to find his wife strangled uh, to death very brutally. And his alibi that he was out all night with a woman is shattered by all of the eyewitnesses who saw him that night who claimed to have seen him but didn't actually see um, the woman, and thus we have the titular phantom lady where did she come from where did she go etc yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I love uh just like the the the, the kind of tone this takes right at the beginning it, it's kind of layers itself in mystery right away with having these two people that are complete strangers and uh you know him saying that he was stood up you're not quite sure if it was like a date his wife anything like that there's just a lot of cool romantic mystery that's involved right away and then you know leading into the murder it just kind of just slingshots you right into the plot. It's a it's a fantastic opening. Yeah, I think what's really really cool um, about the setup of the film and how it takes this is right. Yeah, you've got Alan Curtis and this mysterious woman who won't tell her name, uh, played by Aurora Miranda, complete unknown of the screen. And right there, going like you know, I think this bar scene has a sort of really really cool romantic tension, um, and there's clearly a game afoot and it's not clear what that game is. And of course they go to the sort of club where, um, got, um, uh, they watch the show and there's this mystery around a hat. And of course, uh, Elisha Cook Jr., who I think people most recognize from his role in the Maltese Falcon seems to be up to something and suggesting something. And none of this really makes any sense. And then of course, Alan Curtis's character, you know, comes home and finds his wife dead. And I think you get this really tense uh, showdown with the police where it's, I think, you know, it's, it's slow. It's not like moving really, really fast in the way I think certain other noirs, it's kind of sitting in the emotional tension that this film's creating. And like, you don't even know where the film's going to necessarily go. And it hasn't even introduced its uh, ostensible protagonist, the Ella Reigns character yet. Um, And so I think it kind of, throws you in a lot of loops in a way that I don't think Mm -hmm. a lot, you know, noir is of course known for narrative trickery for, you know, rearranging pieces about switching protagonists, but even this one feels really, you know, throws a switch and bait toward, you know, setting up who and what the mystery might be about. And, and and, you know, we can talk about some of the other mysteries that developed from there in terms of how um, this film approaches characterization and approaches getting you know, introducing characters in ways that are unexpected. Yeah, I, like I especially love the way that they just uh, inter- in that show scene where they introduce the the drummer, who at first you don't think is going to be really anything other than this kind of like comedic aspect to the film or something like just this one scene, and he ends up being a pretty just the really horny drummer. Yeah, yeah, and he ends up being <laughs> a pretty significant character. But I just love his his like energy that he gives to the screen right away because it, you know the way that they use the sound the 
the music itself, the, the drums, you can kind of tell that he's not exactly playing what, what is going on. But because he has this solid rhythm that just keeps going, there's something very, uh, it's energetic, but, but it's also like uh, this man is completely impulsive. You know, like, he, and he's he's giving the fuck me eyes to the girl, and the and the and, and the date is just sitting there like, why don't you just bang your drums, brother? Come on now, what are you doing to me here? And uh, yeah, there's just a, a great tone to that, uh, and for and then mm-hmm. for him to be implemented uh, significantly into the plotting later on is is really smart, really cool. Yeah, he 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 honestly gets one of the best scenes in the entire movie. Yeah, hundred percent. And 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 it's interesting how much that um you know. It, this is laid out in the filmmaking so early on because Peter's right that there is something kind of off kilter about the focus of this because again you feel mm-hmm. like this should be you know a, uh, a a one night out with a beautiful dame kind of moment but like there is like this weird focus on things happening in the periphery like a weird moment where the stage actress is really offended that uh, the woman that Alan Curtis is with is wearing the exact same funny hat that she's wearing on you know on stage and you think that right. that's just like a strange detail that would seems odd to bring up and then it becomes hugely important <laughs> to the rest of the story so yeah. it, it, what you realize is that you're getting kind of a a a series of sort of atmospheric details is what kind of like the opening scene of this plays as and you're kind of sitting there wondering like okay what is the actual mystery here and the woman herself is obviously being a little mysterious and cagey and she's you know she's saying you know i'm not going to be very good company this evening and she eventually sort of you know um lets her guard down a little bit to be like it would be fun to laugh tonight and lets her lets lets him take her to a show and uh, you know eventually he they they part ways and he makes his way home and i love this scene where he gets home because he's immediately and again there's this there's this interesting sort of just choice of the way to structure the scene because normally the scene would be like you know, he would arrive home, he would see all the cop lights outside of his house, he would try to get in and they would say that it's a crime scene, um, but instead he actually makes his way inside, it's completely pitch black, he turns the lights on, and a bunch of cops and detectives are waiting in the dark for him, like they were ready yeah. to spin around, smoking, turning a and, lamp on, or something and, like that. And because of the... Just like, weird behavior. <laughs> yeah, and because of the genre that we're in, I thought it was going to be, like, gangsters, and, and that's yeah. kind of like mm-hmm. the, the presentation that they give, right? They're, it's kind of like they're sitting in the dark, they're waiting, it's very ominous. And you, you think that these guys must be criminals and they're going to beat the guy up or, you know, get, steal money or whatever it is. And, and they do this, I think, two or three times in the film where people walk into a room and the cop is just already sitting in their place and they're just like, all right, time to be interrogated. Uh, fuck your rights, I guess, or whatever. It's- well, no, well, and, and, well, what's even weirder about that, too, is that they don't even immediately start berating him. They are completely silent. Oh, and he's yeah. the one yeah, who's asking point. what's going on. They're not telling him what's going on. They're just literally staring at him. Yeah. And, and you're like, like, okay, do I do something here? Eventually, he just decides he's going to go into the bedroom where he finds his dead wife and he realizes what's going on. But again, this is such, this is like an extended two minute sequence of him being like, there's a bunch of strange cops in my uh house and they're not saying anything yeah (laughs) this is like a classic noir trope in a lot of ways right of like where like the role of authority is so just like without even you know you could possibly probably see this on the page even not necessarily having this mysterious atmosphere of having this tension that you guys are talking about and yet once you know it's brought to life on the screen of just like removing them from having cop clothes or at least plain clothes 
these mm-hmm. sort of added silences. Yeah, it just sort of reconfigures the whole perception you have of what exactly is going on, who is in charge here. Uh, like, And yeah, they don't even tell him, oh, by the way, your wife is dead. We want to ask you questions. They kind of like lay him out, I think, really to see what he's going to do because this film so much as we'll get into and once the Ella Raines character comes in and like, you know, uh, investigates thing is about following people's psychology. What happens uh, when they're under pressure or when circumstances change? And I think, you know, they're really trying to ease him out and see what he says because it's, I mean, it's fascinating, right? We don't know really the details of why he's out on the town until we get to the scene. So even right. the releasing of this exposition of, oh, this now we understand the context of all the scenes that we saw earlier is also about creating drama, about us, like, feel, the cops feeling him out and he feeling the cops out. So it kind of creates this otherworldly sense. And I love the way that the camera moves through about how, like, the, the staging and blocking of it is really, yeah, like, you know, the three cops and they're just, like, almost squeezing him in in the frame. Um, And then, of course, I think the lovely detail when they finally come in and remove his dead wife and, like, you know, the I think the hand hangs out for a second. And, like, the, you know, Alan Curtis is not exactly anyone's idea of, like, the great actor, but I think that moment in which he looks at his wife being carried out is just one of those things that just conveys the intense emotionality of the sequence. Yeah, for sure. Th- these, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, do we never see the, the face of the wife? Is that correct? Never. Yeah, so I, th- I thought that that also added an element of both both mystery and kind of like almost distrust even for, for Alan's character because mm. like we well, had that. You're, you're not wrong, but I will bring up one thing I love about this scene is the giant Laura portrait of oh, the yeah. wife that is staring at him in the living room in the frame. There's like this great low angle shot while the cops are interrogating him. And on the right. left side of the frame, right. it's Alan Curtis. And on the right side of the frame, it's taken up entirely by this portrait of his wife who is just staring at him. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, other than that, we don't actually see the wife in the flesh, which is an interesting choice because the the description they use of her murder is so brutal. They say that, you know, the 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 tie was so embedded in her soft flesh, the tie that was being used to strangle her, that they had to cut it off with a knife. That's the kind of language the cops use to try to sort of, uh, you know, activate something inside him, get him sweating. You know, just just as an aside, it makes me think, I wonder if this influenced Hitchcock's frenzy. Have you guys seen it? No, I have. Uh, Frenzy. I don't think I have. Okay, it's a it's a late Hitchcock movie from the seventies. Oh um, yes, I, I lied. I I did. I just recently watched that in quarantine, but I yeah. forgot that I did. I went through my whole Alfred Hitchcock which, uh, master collection set or whatever, and I think that was <laughs> like the movies. second last one or the last yeah. one. Fr- Frenzy, yeah, Frenzy's one, my favorite sort of late Hitchcock one, and I think it kind of gets uh, bad reps in some places, but I think it's absolutely great. And this is most gruesome, and specifically, uh, if you might remember, there's a famous necktie murder sequence that is like yes. probably the most. Gru- gruesome thing that Hitchcock ever directed in his career. And now thinking about their relationship because they stayed in touch um, much, uh, you know, long after uh, Hitchcock, uh, they sort of broke up as a producing team. Uh, Now I'm wondering if like, you know, Hitchcock watched Phantom Lady and heard that description is like, how do I film that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember watching that scene and being like, yeah, this is definitely his most graphic depiction of an overt, like sex murderer (laughs) that you, that like, like you've, that Hitchcock ever got to do. And you almost feel like, um, 
a little bit like uh, De Palma might have stolen a little bit for Blowout as well. So it's interesting. But yeah, the 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 broad strokes of this, like after, um, again, he he finds out that his wife has been killed and he's sort of like the prime suspect. Um, he insists um, uh, with with much conviction that he has an alibi. And we know that he has an alibi because we saw him that entire night. Um, but he starts going back with the cops to all the different various places that he went. Uh, he goes back to the bar where they met. He goes to the taxi driver. He, he approaches the, uh, the stage performers in, in, including the, the, the drummer and the lead actress who definitely we know because of the opening sequence definitely had interactions with her. Obviously the drummer, uh, who was incredibly horny and the stage actress (laughs) who was very upset about the hat. Um, but every single person very, very suspiciously, um, basically says that they have no idea what the fuck he's talking about. They remember seeing him, but they don't remember seeing, um, any woman, uh, with him, which is kind of hilarious because you would think that that would be enough of a, uh, an alibi is that every single person saw him out all night. Yeah. But for some reason it's not an alibi because the, the, he's lying about the woman or they think that he's lying about the woman. Everyone is saying that he is. And I, th- yeah. I do like the emphasis on how overtly all of these different people are lying. The mystery yeah. of the film becomes obviously, why are they lying? Who's paying them to lie? What, what is happening behind the scenes? But we know very clearly in the filmmaking Especially when we get to the drummer and the stage actress, who we know we saw have interactions where the literally the stage actress goes backstage and is furious at the woman wearing the same hat as her. Yeah. And I'm like, how would you not remember that? Yeah. And then I think the drummer <laughs> we- has that shameful moment of like, okay, I'll stop I fucking your your date so hard. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting with the the woman, uh, the the stage singers, because she she's clearly not. I mean, as a learned, not in on the deal. But what she is is extremely vain about anyone having the same particular hat as her. <laughs> and of course, we'll learn right, about right. why that is and how that is. But but I think you know, just speaking of like you know the the sort of ridiculousness of the alibi, I think it's what also tips off the narrative along the way when we get to Thomas Gomez, who's the police inspector who's leading this, is that you know his rationality for why he thinks he might be innocent is because the story is so ludicrous and he commits to the story uh, <laughs> yeah. despite all the evidence against him. And so it's sort of like this question of like, well, why would you commit to such a bad story unless you truly believed it? Yeah, he says something like he it's it's too dumb of a story to not be true <laughs> or something like that, which is, yeah, great little line. Yeah, he, he, he said all the evidence pointed directly to him, so I'm not a like a bad detective, but only a fool or an innocent man would have stuck to such a bad alibi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a guilty man 100% would have been smarter than this man was. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so yeah, he so he kind of he kind of teams up with uh, Alan Curtis's secretary, played by Ella Rains, I believe. Uh, everyone calls her Kansas, but her name is uh, Carol because she's from Kansas. Yeah. Um, and and at this point in the film, she kind of takes over the lead position of the film because Alan Curtis has been locked up, and he has basically immediately tried and found guilty and sentenced to death because of this stupid alibi that he yeah. has. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is kind of comedic, actually, when they get to the courtroom uh, sequence and everyone is just like, yeah, this is the most ridiculous story we've ever heard. Yeah, this guy's definitely guilty. Um, <laughs> but his secretary believes that he's not guilty. 
capable of murder and basically like, you know, begs him to appeal. And when, when he basically essentially gives up because he doesn't have, you know, sort of like the money or contacts to be able to, to do that. Um, he resigns himself to, you know, just death basically. And she decides to prove his innocence, uh, partially because, you know, she, she knows him and knows that he wouldn't be a killer. And also partially it's, it's implied because she's just very deeply in love with him. I think that courtroom sequence is actually really interesting because, again, I think it's one where they find an innovative way to make a boring sequence interesting because we never see him, you know, on in the courtroom. We spend the entire sequence focused on Ella Raines watching the courtroom and then Thomas Gomez as the inspector watching her. So, again, I think it's one of these sequences that takes this bland exposition that like we all know what's going to happen. We don't necessarily need to see it and creates a different sort of environment where like, okay, let's follow these characters psychology. Who, how are they reacting? Cause that's the more important thing that's going to keep this narrative going in a lot of ways. And so I think, you know, Siad Mac and Harrison and, you know, everyone else in terms of taking a sequence that we all know and finding a new way to film it makes it really exciting and sort of propulses us to really try and follow, Follow Ella Raines' character and what she's going to be up to. And this is the character that's really, you know, she dressed a lot like Joan Harrison. Her attitude is very similar to what uh, I've learned is sort of Joan Harrison, like, you know, this sort of no frills, pick me up, like, you know, gonna mm-hmm. like go deeper and deeper more just because I'm so convinced of my ideas that that like that has a lot of like, you know, I'm sure this is like where Harrison's sort of um, narrative developments and push on the screenplay probably showed itself the strongest. Yeah, well, and I, I read that in 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 the the book that the film is um, adapted from that actually this character was just a woman that the um, husband was having an affair with and that Joan Harrison very clearly made the choice to actually make this a business relationship that she was a secretary that she thought that was a more interesting dynamic between um those two characters than just simply you know she's the you know uh, love struck uh teeny bopper <laughs> kind of style character she was like no she needs to be a little bit more capable and a little bit more um interesting in this regard and this does peter's right like th- that sequence definitely signals that she is going to take over the film and when she does uh, a lot of the sequences become really, really interesting. Like immediately she starts uh, like tailing the bartender and she goes to the That's bar, a she orders sequence. a glass of water and she just glares at him for mm-hmm. 12 hours uh, <laughs> yeah. from open to close. Uh, like three days I, in I, a row. <laughs> I, I love the extreme wide shots of her just looking down from the end of the other end of the the bar while he's serving customers. You can even uh, occasionally see her in like the big mirror behind him. I love, he's uh, just freaked out. I love when like a lot of the time it'll show her just in a, in kind of the empty bar, but I love the sequence where there's just a ton of people and it's popping off and everyone's just really physical and moving around and having a good time. And she's just right in the corner staring completely still. And you can just see it in the background the entire time. It's, it's a great contrast to all the craziness that's going on in that scene. Yeah, and, well, and, and even as she uh, pivots, like, away from the bar and waits till he eventually, like, goes home, oh, there's yeah. this great the shot of him, like, sequence. walking down this down the street, and she is just sitting there uh, reading a paper underneath one of the lights, and as he walks by, we don't know that it's her, She then uh, as he walks by, in the background, we can see her put the paper down and then start <laughs> tailing him. That classic and move. It, 
Yeah, it's just like, you know, moving in the shadows behind him. It's a creepy little stalker sequence. Just we are in the point of view of the woman who is actually doing sort of like the detective work. She becomes sort of like, you know, what you would usually see the lead PI character of a noir. And it's not, you know, usual to see the secretary kind of get those kinds of scenes. Yeah, there's sort of like these, we get three sort of stalking investigation or investigation sequences that I really want to focus on. And uh, I think there's different turns in each of them that I think show a different sort of gender flip. And right, you said, right, this is the woman stalking the man. And that's very interesting. But I also think her character makes a decision that I think is really, really interesting is that she's not hiding the fact that she's stalking him, right? She's got right. these heels on that, you know, add to this thing, <laughs> this suspense. Now, yeah, they become le- part of the soundscape as they're, like, walking to, to each other in silence. Yeah, yeah. this leads to some danger, right, when she's at the subway and he comes up behind her because now there's nobody Terrifying. around and, you know, you know, it, it really feels, and, you know, she's saved at the last minute by an African-American woman who happens to be riding the subway as well. But also one of the things is she's using this public space, right, that, like, women are vulnerable and so so when, uh, you know, he finally confronts her, the thing that happens is every man who's around on the street says, hey, why are you bothering this lady? Do we need to take care? <laughs> right. She's using sort of the ge- the traditional gender roles to her advantage in a lot of ways yeah. uh, to cool. make him even more scared and freak out. And unfortunately, that leads to a dead end uh, as he, you know, jumps into the street in front of a <laughs> semi truck or something. But right. It's like I think it's really interesting in the way that that sequence uh, just tr- uh, kind of goes against what we usually think of in terms of these stalking sequences and what a regular detective might be doing. Yeah. Also yeah, the- well, even, even even just the choice to immediately confront him in the bar and be like, I know that you've done something wrong and I'm going to wait until you tell me. <laughs> yeah, and also the thought, like, that shot of him walking behind her and then almost pushing until that woman comes up to stop him a little bit. Like, there there is something there where... Like, at first you think, you know, obviously there's something going on with this guy, but you wouldn't think that somebody, you know, this this normal bartender was capable of pushing a woman onto subway tracks. So once you see that mo- that that movement uh, in that moment, like, you really start to feel like there's something much grosser happening. And uh, it, it's just a good way to propel the, the plot forward more so. Yeah, definitely. So we get to the best sequence in this movie then? Hell yeah, sure. So, right, so, like, I mean, this is, like, when I first saw this movie, oh, about seven, eight years ago, like, you know, this is, like, I always think of this film in terms of the famous Howard Hawks uh, quote that every film should have, like, three good sequences and no bad ones, and, like, this one really, I think confirms to that in a lot of ways. So Ella Raines decides to, after, you know, losing her first lead, is to go to the second lead, which is the Elisha Cook Jr., the drummer, you know, so she decides to dollar herself up and really give some fuck me eyes to Elisha Cook Jr., who's <laughs> really, really, really excited um, to <laughs> He is you know, banging get away on those drums, this. boy. And, uh, and and really bags away those drums because, you know, she takes a, or he takes her to like, uh, you know, an underground jazz club. And like this is a sequence oh, yeah. where I know in the production code they really had to uh, turn down the amount of drug use that, uh, you know, wanted <laughs> to be implied on screen. Uh, and I feel you like know, the, but, just how off kilter and crazy the scene is itself. It like just implies all that drug use for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it's a real like acid trip. And I, you just see like the way that Siadmak's camera enters that room where this jazz quartet is playing. It's like, it really does feel like, I, I don't know if you guys have seen like um, The Connection, the Shirley Clark film from 1961. It's sort of a hybrid doc about a bunch of jazz musicians waiting for a drug score. But it has that same sort of energy of trying to capture like the beat spirit Um and really kind of like just feel like you've entered an entirely different world that's even yeah. beyond the world of noir that feels like it's almost starting to try and, you know, lean toward an experimental type of filmmaking. Yeah. 100%. Oh, de- definitely. This, this scene was the one that really blew me away in this film because, you know, she, she obviously, she sits in the same seat that uh, Alan Curtis and the uh, Phantom Lady sat in during the performance and she obviously starts indicating toward the, the the drummer and, you know, she's wearing very scandalous outfit and she eventually meets him after the show and says, you know, you can take me wherever you'd like. I'm a, I'm a hip kitten. And he takes her <laughs> to this little dive bar that I, I don't even think can be called a dive bar because it's just a room like with a, a room. band in it <laughs> yeah. and a table of alcohol. That's it. It's like a dresser table. <laughs> and this sequence is absolutely insane because it goes on for such a long period of time. And essentially it is just the band playing and the um, Elijah Cook joins uh, in the drumming and looks at her. And this basically becomes what I'm going to describe as like an erotic musical oh, for yeah. about a full minute. And it is just a series of very stylish close-ups and a very rhythmic montage to the music performances where it's just lots of focus on the lines of light and the sweat on their faces, the motion of the players, the texture of their instruments. And he basically does like the drum solo from the end of Whiplash or something (laughs) while they're like staring at each other. And she is just getting more and more, essentially, by the, you know, by the, the language of the film, she's just basically getting turned on and excited by the musicality and the insanity and the implied uh, uh, drugs and the way that they're all getting kind of increasingly unhinged. And that is what results in him, like, actually taking her home with him. Um, yeah, just before and- they get home, though, I want to say there's a couple of great things that I want to point out in this sequence. Okay, yeah, go for it. The first is, right, this is the sequence in which, um, to put it in the language of 30 Rock and uh, the Jenna Maroney character, she's using her sexuality, uh, so to say. (laughs) Right. Um, But I think there's this great moment right in the middle of the sequence where it almost comes back to zero, where Ella Raines' character um, looks at herself in the mirror and recognizes, and I think she ends up fixing her lipstick, but it's one of these moments where she recognizes herself giving this performance that, right? Like this, this is a, you know, she's a woman from Kansas who is usually just a, you know, a secretary in a business office. It's pretty, you know, normal. And it's, I think the moment where she realizes how deep she's in, because it's not just about looking around and searching for clues, but she sees how much she's transformed herself. And like, and the look she, she gives at that moment, I think is really, really important for keeping this film going down the rabbit hole and needing like I need to commit to this if I truly uh, am gonna get to you know the the mystery at the the end of this and of course that's what then leads her to like dive in and go home with this guy yeah yeah and and, and essentially find out that he was paid uh, as he puts it 500 smackaroos for <laughs> looking at a dame in the front row and saying I didn't um and so it's kind of our first indication because we've known this whole time that something is up, but it's our first sort of concrete 
in material indication that someone paid this drummer to lie and make sure that Alan Curtis, um, you know, was basically sentenced to death for the murder of his wife. And, um, he kind of very quickly realizes, um, that he is being entrapped because he finds all of his information in her purse, which is, it's a bad sign for sure. Um, <laughs> and I think it even has like the, uh, the, the police, uh, like head writing on it or something like that. He's basically <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. This, I'm, I'm being, I'm being tracked clearly, clearly you are undercover or something's going on here. There is like this cool little, um, sequence where, you know, he gets very upset and he breaks the lamp and, and, and rips her dress. And it's, it's very stylish little, um, creepy sequence as she tries to run her way across the street and call the inspector and be like, I've, I've found proof that, you know, uh, that Alan Curtis is, is is innocent, but before that they can actually both make their way back there, probably maybe my second favorite sequence in this film is the introduction of um, Francha Tone's Tone. character. Yeah, Francha um, Tone's such a fascinating actor, and especially in this film, um, just to sort of give the, the background is he was sort of a, you know, minor leading man in Hollywood in the thirties, uh, mostly in like romantic comedies. There's a good Western where he's like a straight, uh, laced hero trail, the vigilantes. That's an Alan Dwan picture. Um, but he made you know, he was a, a good, nice leading man. And he's a very beautiful man. Like he's just got that great blonde hair, that great straight face. Like, you know, he is the type, uh, that's well known for being like, you know, the nicest guy in the world, but he didn't really care for Hollywood. Um, he wasn't necessarily involved when his contract with MGM was over. I believe he signed briefly with Universal, briefly with Paramount, and then he actually went to Broadway. Uh, he got more out of acting on the stage. However, though, he had this relationship with Joan Harrison. They had become very close when, you know, she was very involved in the Hollywood circles. She was, like, dating Clark Gable. Uh, she, like, dated a lot of men, actually, uh, here and there. Um, so Joan Harrison's the one who convinced him to come back to Hollywood and make this film specifically because it was going off type that he could play someone who was very, very different. And I think audiences would have recognized that, that it was strange to see, um, French and tone in this type of character, which of course is a classic Hitchcock move, right? Casting Cary Grant in suspicion, right? Casting against type always right. makes for more interesting roles. And that's what makes this sequence again, really, really fascinating and how this character plays out. Yeah, and and just the way that they like the way that they introduce him, he's got that uh, you know kind of similar to how you feel when you saw the cops at first. It was kind of like the gangster has arrived, uh, somebody that is a little bit uh, dangerous, and and then sitting down with Cliff, you really do get that that um, that strength that he has, and uh, the way that they shoot him, he appears just so big, and he is, I think, a naturally tall man. It seems. But that, yeah. that shadow shot that they have over Cliff's worried face as you know that he's about yeah. to use his hands for violence and, and to kill uh, is unbelievable. And the white gloves. And then the genius, yeah, and then the genius of the next scene for him to be revealed as this very normal guy that they're actually kind of friends with, uh, it, it really shows just how, uh, I guess, versatile he is. And I, I wasn't familiar with Tone, um, but now that you say that, that he was kind of like that that romantic comedy leading man 
uh, and to He's use him for this, for sure. yeah, it's it's great just because he also has that 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 strength and uh, physicality, so he can really play dangerous as well. It was well, it was yeah, really that good. that that monologue that he gets when he starts t- he starts looking at his hands and he right. starts saying, you know, how interesting a pair of hands can be. <laughs> they can trick melody out of a piano p- keyboard. They can mold beauty out of a piece of common clay. They can bring life back to a dying child. And he basically says that, you know, hands can do all these inconceivable goods, yet at the same time, they can do terrible evil. They can destroy, whip, torture, even kill. Um, And he says, I wish I didn't have to use my hands to hurt a human being. And that's exactly (laughs) what he says before that. Basically, that spotlight (laughs) shot of, of Cliff, very stylish shot of just very harsh directional lighting on his face is like interrupted by his shadow just consuming yeah. uh, the entirety of Cliff on screen. And, you know, we we know just from that what exactly has happened. <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is, again, like one of the weird, great ways that this narrative is set up because um, we've been told earlier in the film that there was this party at, um, at uh, Alan Curtis's home um, where, you know, they had a few friends over. They had one friend who was going off to South America for some sort of business opportunity, um, but we're not told anything. So when Francis Tone shows up, like, we don't know that he's at all related to right. anyone, right? That it's like, I, yep. and I yep. remember him being the big honcho and the murderer. I just didn't remember, like, what his relationship to any of the characters were. And it really kind of just, I think, speaks to how this film sets up that you get this horrifying sequence, the the sort of way the light, um, the cinematography by Woody Brigell on the white gloves that sort of almost makes them glow supernaturally uh, just builds up this villain. And of course then like one, one scene later, it's like, Oh, he is actually deep in it. And he is going to be along the ride of this detective mystery for the same time. And so like, right, you've got some really weird characterization going on here. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really good use of dramatic irony, and really makes the um, the back half of the film like much creepier than it should be because we're introduced to him as this um, you know uh, almost this supernatural psycho killer, and then all of a sudden he's the charismatic business partner uh, for the rest of the film. He plays the rest of the film, joining as part of the investigation and just kind of talking with everyone, and. It's kind of the reverse of the giant, famous Orson Welles reveal in The Third Man, where Mm -hmm. they spend that whole movie building up his character and talking about him, and then there's the reveal, and then there's the conversation with him where he's saying a whole bunch of really horrifying things, but at that point, he's been so mythologized by the characters, and this one works with the exact reverse, where we get that horrifying introduction first, then we spend time with him as just a charismatic businessman, and I found that just so troubling in scenes that wouldn't normally be troubling, because all of a sudden then, you're just having scenes where, you know, she's going and visiting him at his uh, prison cell, where it's just a, a room separated by like torso high bars <laughs> uh yeah. which i thought was i not exactly what i thought a prison would look like in the 1940s that, that but sequence i go. think um that shot specifically of what the light coming down i think is exactly where the yes. um, the coen brothers ripped the man who wasn't there from yes uh, yeah that 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 heavenly light that's coming through there is is so bright um 
but when you get just normal scenes where they where they you know he's just talking to his close friend and we're sitting there going oh man that guy could strangle anyone in this room at any second yeah. it just brings a different kind of vibe to those sequences yeah. which i which i thought I also was quite love strong. like the subtlety that they'll have he has like a line that says something uh He's like, there's a genius behind such audacity, like almost trying to make an excuse, like have people praise the killing uh, so that he can almost, I don't know, feel something good about it or something. And then the guy replies with, no, it's only madness, not really giving him anything (laughs) at all. And uh, yeah, I just I found I found that interesting that because of those because we already have the knowledge of him being a killer, those subtle little those subtle little lines of dialogue just just cut a little bit sharper. Uh, Yeah, it's it's fantastic. You can you can really you can really tell that tone is a Broadway performer and makes use of his Mm, body in so many ways, just not only his height, but like you can't watch any scene in this film without watching his hands and watching where his (laughs) hands are going to be. Cause I think he's so good at using them as signals of where his psychology might be at any moment and what's sort of motivating him as he thinks, you know, I think there's this sequence just in his apartment where you, you we learn he's a sculptor of some type. You know, he's a genius yeah, artist. It's fucking with his art hands. deco ass apartment that he's got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just like where his hands. Like I think there's a couple times where he like you know he's just putting his hands over some of the sculptures he's made, and you can just feel the tension that is sort of uh, reveling off him. For sure. And are those those are the head sculptures, right? Yeah. Yeah, because they even have a, little, a small sequence where, like, one of them, uh, it, it almost appears like uh, Anna is is frightened at one of them, because uh, it like it, it seems like she she goes in to call the the police because she thinks that she found the killer, uh, and then when she goes outside, she gets almost startled by like one of the head statues. And I just found oh that, that that's that's because that's because the hat wasn't on it anymore. Right. Because previously right. they oh, yeah. had they had set the the hat that was going to prove that he was innocent on top of it, and then she comes back out and the hat's missing, and she knows that he's sitting in the same place, but that <laughs> hat is gone now. Yeah. So he's he's clearly uh you know uh, aware of the situation, and most of the film actually becomes him basically trying to manipulate her investigation by getting inside of it. But at one point he even tells her that she should, she should stop because you know this is a man's job the uh the uh, private investigator detecting um and she basically just says that you know i need this you know i want to put an end to the death and the and the madness and he has this great line where he just said where he's he never basically thought of his actions as madness and he was like that's actually a frightening word maybe (laughs) maybe he hates killing and it's one yeah. of those things where, like, if someone said that to me, I would be like, you sound like you've thought a lot about this killer. <laughs> <laughs> you've psychoanalyzed him a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a great, I mean, to sort of move the narrative along, like, right, like, so they go, of course, to the third person because Elisha Cook Jr. is dead. So they go back to the theater. The theater's closing down. The, um, the singer absolutely wants nothing to do. She checks the dressing room. The dressing room's already empty. It seems like it's almost like a dead end. And then she just uh, happens to notice, uh, I mean, it works out coincidence where the singer has left early on an earlier plane, but the secretary's still there. And Ella Raines notices um, one of the boxes where the uh, where a hat is in and not that specific hat, but like, oh, she knows 
the specific maker of these unique hats. And we learned the reason that this singer was so upset about it is that each hat is individually made for her because she cannot have any others. And there was a, you know, <laughs> an undersecretary who happened to sell or uh, make another one and sell it to this woman, um, which feels like a bad idea if you're trying to, you know, concoct a whole murder situation for various reasons, <laughs> but like it works out very well in, uh, for everyone involved in this situation. Um, and, you know, it's just one that, again, picks up on, like, the female intuition of following. And I think it really, the sequence that surprised me most this time when I had seen it, obviously the acid sequence, the hand sequence were, like, favorite. But it's the sequence where Ella Raines confronts the woman, the phantom lady, um, who we learn it seems to be, like, emotionally trauma and unstable and basically, like, unable to speak. And why I think this is, like, one of these great sequences that really comes out of Joan Harrison is what um, the Ella Raines character does is shows empathy and listens and tries mm-hmm. to just draw her out uh, a sort of on a woman-to-woman to show friendship toward her and like this is a sequence that right if you had philip marlowe if you had a robert mitchum like character you'd never get anything like this and it hops in but it needs to be a woman who sees the emotional devastation inside this other woman in order to finally draw out that character Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and and, that, and that's how she's able to activate that part inside of her that goes and grabs the hat, and that's how she's able to actually get her hands on the hat is by revealing that sort of sensitivity in the first place, um, and then obviously that is uh, what leads us into the big finale of the film <laughs> where she goes back to Jack Marlowe's um, apartment and is basically like, "We've we've done it. We have proved his alibi. I have the hat." that uh which again that's it's so funny how like thin all of this alibi (laughs) stuff is like the existence of this hat all of a sudden makes that ridiculous alibi (laughs) like more plausible but uh there there is this interesting thing where you know um tone now kind of realizing you know that that she is getting closer to um catching him essentially or figuring out uh not necessarily figuring out exactly that it's him but finding out that there is someone else and they're going to strike up an investigation where they eventually will find him um he in this again this very strange looking apartment with all kinds of like he has like a a giant open space with like what looks like a like a therapist bed that he's laying on (laughs) surrounded by a whole bunch of his own like clay statues that it's implied that he's you know made himself by hand and there's just a really strange, um, you know, sort of vibe that he gives off as he's, you know, saying, you know, we should wait here. We should wait here for Burgess. And I think leading up to the scene, there was this part where he's like driving her around and he is the one I think who it, it suggested calls Burgess. But it I, it was kind of unclear whether he actually did or not. Well, he there's just a great goes to the payphone. There's a great close-up where his hand sneakily slides and uh, clicks it yes. off. And, like, again, it's yes, one of these great insert of. shots that just, like, beautifully shows the craftiness of his hands. And so then he performs a call without ever doing it. 
Right, right. And yeah, I love that shot where he's on the payphone and then in the, the, the mid-ground between them, you can see the kids playing outside in the gas station. And then you can see her in the car and it's just this wide shot where you get all three of them at the same time as he's manipulating the situation to get her back to his apartment. And But as soon as she, you know, she puts the hat on the giant head of the statue, as we mentioned, and she goes into the bathroom to freshen up and she finds Cliff's info and her purse, essentially, um, which she knows had to have been the person who who killed Cliff while she was across the street calling um, the detective. Um, So she now makes a call and then spots that the the hat is missing now and she's kind of caught up with us in knowing that he's the killer. And there's this interesting element where he is, you know, he's clearly manipulating the situation and he kind of knows what that that she knows on a little bit on some level, but he's not making any immediate movements, which is so scary. There's, and he's basically just complaining that his head is on fire, I think is what he says. There's a great yeah. shot. I, I think it's like one of my favorite shots in the film is when she realizes she's in trouble and he knows it. Uh, she makes a break for the door and the door is locked. Yes. But instead of the camera just stays in one place, it stays uh, in a deep focus shot with Tone's character dominating the frame. And so she's just like, she goes yeah. from big in the frame to literally this tiny little girl in the corner. And it's just one of those great noir shots that uses framing and composition just to turn the sequence totally around on us. Yeah, no, that's that that's a great moment and, and a very scary moment as she realizes that she's obviously trapped in there. And he gives this big monologue about, you know, how I've never liked the city, the noise, the confusion, dirt, uh, I don't belong here, and uh, neither do you. Don't suffer. Come with me, which I, I believe he's relaying the story that, uh, as he's confessing, that that was basically what he said to um, Alan Curtis's wife, and that he was having an affair with her, and she was just doing it, essentially, uh, as she says, for um, for for fun, that it didn't really mean anything, and that you know she's not going to run away with him essentially, and that really makes him angry, and is what um, I, th- I think uh, he says that uh, she she laughed at him, and that was kind of like the trigger for him. Yeah, it's, it's she she he repeats the same story that actually Alan Curtis's character had told us early in the film that had set yeah. up him off in this whole adventure is that. Um, she, la- I think he wanted a divorce and she kept laughing at him and laughing at him and he's the one who walked out. But then we learned that she also doesn't want to leave um, her husband for Francis Tone's character. The whole idea that is that she was going to jump on the, mm-hmm. um, the plane, uh, the boat to South America with him and they, she didn't go. And that's why she was dead in the first place. Damn. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so Alan's character nope. was just like, fuck it. I'll go to a bar and and uh, the other character was like, I'm gonna kill her. So definitely, uh, you know, with one of his very specifically <laughs> uh, fancy ties. Yes, I, yes. I, I forgot to bring that up, but I love that line. They where make they fun say, of his clothes this is, because this is, this is a nice tie. I wish I could afford something <laughs> like that, something strong enough that it could uh, <laughs> strangle this woman to death without this is good breaking. material. <laughs> strong. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, yeah, and um, this gets really creepy as, like, he starts, like, approaching Ella Raines' character, and the phone is ringing as he's approaching, and he's kind of, like, tightening the tie, suggesting that, obviously, he's gonna, he's gonna kill again, um, and he, th- 
obviously through his monologue, we get this idea that he doesn't really think that he's insane. He views himself as kind of understandably slighted. Um, and there's, there's a great conversation we kind of missed where he talks to the detective too, where the detective basically like invents psychology in front of him, <laughs> uh, where, where he's just like, you know, the, the criminal type is not really a look. It's the way that the brain works. The, the Borgias, Jack, the Ripper, American gangsters, um, you know, they, they all sort of share the same sort of collective insanity and the the look on his face while he's like looking in the mirror thinking about that like realizing that you know he can kind of trace the logic in his action but he sort of starts questioning them a little bit at that point as well it all doesn't end up um, mattering because weirdly enough he doesn't quite get to uh explore that in the finale from what i understand they kind of uh force joan to do a, a different ending for this film that's what it felt where like he he was supposed to talk to the detective or there was supposed to be an extended confession sequence. And instead, you know, uh, the detective arrives and Ella Raines runs towards him and together they both hear the shattering of glass and they come back in and they do see this really cool shot of the broken glass yeah. leading out in, into the night sky where he has, you know, jumped out the window to his death. Um, so, you know, they, they make the best of it, but it was interesting that that sort of uh, didn't end up really getting um, addressed. And instead he just jumps out the window. We don't really get any more uh, out of him. And then she returns to work you know, thinking that it's kind of business as usual. She's got her boss off the hook, but then the boss has, Alan Curtis has left a dictaphone message telling her <laughs> that, uh, you know, they're going to have dinner tonight and tomorrow and every night. And there's a little every bit of, night, sort of like baby. A, a romantic <laughs> warmness. She smiles, realizing that, you know, the boss understands that, you know, she, she's yeah. in love with him. And it's, it's again, it's a nice but, sort of twist. Uh, I mean, I'll say like, yeah, just a slightly go back that that sort of final confrontation has a lot of good stuff but it is the maybe the only disappointing moment is that you feel like it should be bigger and better just based on so many of the other great sequences we've had in this movie yeah um but that shot right. of the window is great but yeah i think the sort of the ending with the dictaphone message again is a nice little twist on just having them come together, having, I think the great, again, it's the good bait and switch where it's like, oh, she's just going to go back to romantically longing him and she's not going to get any rewards for, you know, literally saving his life. And so I think it's a nice way to play off without having to just do the generic Hollywood kiss. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For sure. Yeah. It's definitely specific to her character. Yeah. Uh, but but pivoting towards the reductive rating round, which for uh, you, Peter, is the part of the show, we move all the words, all the nuance, and reduce the movie between a number between one and five. But it's also turned into sort of like closing statements or any any uh, scenes or any lines we didn't hit that you wanted to bring up. Uh, but for me, this one got got a got a pretty solid to high four for me because I I think that you know it it, it has some of you know the the usual murder mystery and abuse and infidelity um um sort of subjects of of the genre but i do like the idea of vigilante private investigator ella reigns kind of becoming the lead and the stalker and the seducer of the picture for large portions of it which is a a, a unique um subversion and i think that um seed mac has a good eye for you know expressive nightmare atmospherics in some of the um sequences that we've been talking about like the hands and we've been talking about the, the the jazz sequence as well and even even in the finale there is something really tense about sort of like removing the mystery from the audience of who the killer is so early on and just having um you know sort of using camera work and using um tones performance to kind of get the that creepiness quality around and i think he has a good sense of again 
the beaming lights and, and inky shadows and of course rhythmic montage and he does capture I think a sense of kind of like strange impulses and dread and dramatic irony that kind of takes over what you know on the surface is kind of a you know a bit of a a, a simple um dramatic mystery again I'll, I'll be revisiting this I think just for like the weird erotic sexualized music scene and the <laughs> yeah. scary images of of hands and uh, strange hats and art decor apartments it, it, it it's definitely a way to um, take this material and just shoot it in a way that makes it far more interesting yeah yeah I'm also gonna give it uh, the four out of five uh, one sequence I just wanted to mention uh, was uh, I really liked when they were traveling. Um, it was that you you mentioned it actually when when he does that phone call and she's it's a nice shot of the kids in the midground and then she's in the background, he's in the foreground. But I loved when at the beginning of that scene where uh, she's they're traveling and she's just asleep on his shoulder. And it's like what you said, Josh, earlier, where it's like just small details that wouldn't normally make you feel uncomfortable just automatically do because we know what. Uh, uh, what tone is capable of. And, mm-hmm. her, you know, she wakes up and she mentions the fact that he, she's like, how long have I been asleep? And he's just like, oh, it's been, you've been asleep h- half the way. And so it's just this idea that it's like this whole time she was asleep on a killer's shoulder. He could have done anything in those few hours. And I just, there's a lot of that, which I, I can really appreciate. And the way that this thing moves, like there's, it's just constant uh, for every, you know, for every answer they give you, there's two more questions until finally the, the, the finale uh, happens. And, and I was just, you know, I was, I was intrigued the entire time. I was really, really compelled. So, uh, yeah, I love this. I'm going to have to check out some more, uh, some more Robert Siedmak. Siedmak. How do you say yeah. that again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> check out, check out, um, the, uh, the, the killers for sure. Yeah. I actually have that I, I watched that on the Criterion uh, channel not that long ago and it has a really cool non-linear story where they're like investigating why a guy essentially would let Hitman kill him. It's basically <laughs> Citizen it has, like, Kane. A really, yeah, it's, it's, it's very cool and it, ha- you know, it has a robbery, it has the femme fatale and it has one of my favorite noir lines of all time. Don't ask a dying man to lie his soul into hell. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I would uh, I'd also... Yeah, but for you, Peter. Yeah, uh, I would also just put a pitch in for the two other great Joan Harrison uh, noirs of this period. Uh, the first being Dark Waters, which is a Southern Bayou uh, noir Ooh. directed by the great Andre de Toth. It also stars Francis Tone um, and Merle Oberon and Thomas Mitchell. Just a uh, really, really great super psychological uh, noir. Um, I believe uh, Andrew Saris was a big fan of that. And then the one I mentioned before, Ride the Pink Horse, which is uh, directed and starring Robert Montgomery. Uh, it's based off a of Dorothy B. Hughes novel uh, written by Ben Hecht and Charles Letterer. So it's just like all across. That one's on Criterion um, disc. I don't know if it's on the Criterion channel currently, but both of those are great. Uh, yeah, I give this, a, this awesome. is like a high four for me in the place where I kind of say, you know, it's not maybe my f- all-time favorite noir, but it's the one I almost think about the most. It's the one that I think takes mm. so much of what are the expectations of the genre and finds new ways to do it. And I think really because Harrison really went all out. On, and this was her first film as a producer outside of the eyes of Hitchcock. And like 
I think it just shows that she was such a huge talent and so knew how to bring the right people together to, you know, work within the confines of the studio system, but create something that's so singular. And I think, as you say, right, it's maybe you don't think we'll think about everything in this film and how it all perfectly fits together. But there are enough scenes that you'll never stop thinking about it. And I think that's why. I love it so much why I wanted to choose it and why, you know, I think this is the second time I've seen this now and like I just get more out of it and I expect I'll get more out of it and just notice more nuances and more interesting elements and just like I love thinking about these characters and how they all play out. All right. Well, I think that that's going to wrap it up for Phantom Lady. We're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about May God Forgive Me. We are back, and we are talking May God Forgive Me, the 1948 Mexican espionage noir directed by one Tito Davison uh, and starring Maria Felix, Fernando Soller, and uh, looking at the... I've tried to find out who the who the last guy is. Is it, is it Julian Soller? They must, are they related? I did not know that they were related. Yeah. But they have the same last name, so I'm going to... Uh, maybe I shouldn't assume that at the moment, (laughs) but, uh, broadly may God forgive us, uh, takes on the subject of European refugees, um, in Mexico after world war two and, um, sort of, uh, follows Maria Felix's, uh, character, Sophia, who it is implied is a concentration camp, uh, survivor, who has made her way into Mexico and is infiltrating the rich and high society potential warmongers who profited off of her um, suffering. And uh, we're going to be uh, upfront. We watched a <laughs> version of this film that was a, uh, a low quality rip with auto translated YouTube subs. Yeah. So uh, there's going to be some specifics we might all need to co- elaborate together to figure out exactly. <laughs> um, I think a lot of us together will get the broad strokes just fine. Absolutely. But Peter did bring on a very obscure uh, film, which is awesome. We love talking about this, especially just the idea that, you know, uh, Peter's right. I, I did not know that there were Mexican noirs coming out at the exact same time that we were seeing American noirs. So it's very cool to uh, see that, which we get, you know, we'll get into as we we talk about this film, because there's some really interesting dynamics that they get at in here. And they they were doing some interesting things with the style as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, go ahead. But maybe, Peter, you can start by giving us some of the uh, some of the the historical background, you know, you've actually researched, I believe, um, sort of like the the Mexican studio system and stuff like that around this time, correct? Yeah, I did a piece um, a few years ago about, um, for Little White Lies, the British publication. I was specifically looking at Disney's runaway production um, of The Littlest Outlaw, which um, is a one of the very nice Disney films at the time, but was actually relied a lot on Mexican labor and a Mexican director, uh, Roberto Galvedon. Um, but I think there's been more interest in sort of these um, Mexican and Argentine noirs just to give a 
basic history is um, in the silent period, a lot, uh, there wasn't much Spanish language cinema, obviously, because there was silent cinema and uh, Mexico relied a lot on American imports. There were questions about that. There were at one time was an embargo of all American films into Mexico, but um, American films are very popular and actually helped create a more cosmopolitan environment in a lot of the large cities. A lot of people from Mexico poured into the industry, you know, women wanting to be stars, uh, people trying to find labor, but a lot of just like, yeah, craft people who are looking for jobs realized that there were a lot of jobs in Los Angeles. And if they could take the trip, you know, from Baja, California, from Tijuana, um, from these spaces to Los Angeles, they could get work. Um, and then when the Mexico film industry uh, really got started in the 1930s, um, it became very, very popular, very fast. Um, basically, um, and this happened with Egypt and the Middle East as well, but Mexico had a strong studio presence that then could export throughout the entire Latin American and Caribbean regions to any Spanish language country. You know, people were just happy to see Spanish language films. Musicals became very popular, and then comedies with people like uh, Pedro Armendaz and Cantiflas. Um, and then in the 40s, the money came in. That's what really, really transformed. I think there was just a lot of money pouring in and a bunch of studios, including the one that produced this studio, Filmex, um, you know, they were making at like say classical Hollywood studio levels, like, you know, a hundred films wow. possibly a year. Um, so there's just a lot of stuff and a lot of genre stuff and a lot of stars um, developing in this industry that then could go ever. And because so many of these people were trained in Hollywood studio production in the twenties and thirties, they knew all the tricks and they watched Hollywood films and they watched what was going on. And like, you know, there was just general exchange. Um, I think the most, famous film of this period, ironically, in a lot of ways, is the... Um is ironically The Fugitive, the John Ford movie. Um, it was his first independent film. He shot it in Mexico. Um, the cinematographer is the great Gabriel Figueroa, who became one of the great cinematographers of Mexican cinema throughout this period. Uh, that's a Henry Fonda film where he plays a Mexican priest. It's based on the novel The Power and the Glory. Um, that's a Graham Greene novel, and like it's sort of his resistance to um, some of the gangsters in town. And I think that kind of becomes this sort of focal point, but there are so many great noir films coming out of Mexico throughout this period. Films um, like Salon Mexico. Uh, I'm going to hold on one second. Let me titles. I've seen a bunch of them, but I always forget the names. They always have very generic names. Um, <laughs> so uh, Another Dawn, uh, this film Twilight I've seen, Crispiculo uh, is very good. Uh, the biggest problem with a lot of these, of course, is like they don't get releases or restoration. I'm, the work that the Film Noir Foundation, um, which is based here in San Francisco, um, has been doing a lot of work, but they ne aren't necessarily making it to DVD or good versions yet. And so I think this film has played a few times on 35 millimeter in the States as part of these retrospectives. Um, but unfortunately, the best releases are usually a VHS copy from the 90s or a rip off mm -hmm. cable TV somewhere uh, in Mexico. Gotcha. And you kind of have to work from that. Um, like I said I actually hadn't seen this one I just kind of saw the pitch for the story and I was like well that seems like a good pairing with it and I actually always love a double feature that's something you know really well and something you don't know at all and you don't know what's going to be <laughs> um, so 
my Spanish is okay enough that, you know, I was able to follow the story. And I always have this line. Um, oh, nice. I used to... Um, I used to work for IFC, uh, the independent film company, um, doing some work for them. And um, that often required me to watch some of the films that they picked up for distribution. And I'd have to watch them without subtitles. And my line that I learned is, if you could understand the story, the film was good enough. And if you couldn't, then the <laughs> filmmaking wasn't good. And so I always argue that people should watch films without subtitles, even from countries you don't know, because, like, are you watching for the story? Are you watching for, like, the great actors, the actresses, the camera movements, the performances? And I think this is a film where, you know, I would certainly want to know a little more of the details of the story because uh, I feel like I am mm-hmm. missing things in certain ways. But there's also just the great Maria Felix uh, at the center. Just, you know, Maria Felix was one of the all-time superstars of this era, if possibly the superstar. Yeah, I, I, I knew that just by looking at the poster because her name is bigger than the title of the film on the poster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's the cell, yeah. for sure. I mean, she's... And, it, and, and it's literally just a picture of her face. I'm not even sure that it's her character from the film. It just looks like a, a drawing of her. Yeah, yeah. Right. We and got Maria. <laughs> If you haven't seen Enna Morada, which is the film from Emilio Fernandez, uh, the camera cinematography is by Gabriel Fer- uh, Figueroa. Um, this is a really, really wonderful romantic comedy that's, uh, I believe, a remake of a Shakespeare adaptation of a Shakespeare play. Uh, Pedro Amadurias, uh plays the dashing star. Uh, this film was just recently restored by the... Uh, the World Cinema Foundation, which is run by Martin Scorsese, it premiered at Il Cinema Ritrovato a few years ago. I hope it um, plays or gets a you know a release on DVD or something. It's absolutely lovely, and that's the film that made Felix an absolute star. She also has a brief role in um, a Jean Renoir film. I believe it's French Con Con, but don't but maybe someone can correct me on that uh, later in the show notes. And she also starred in one of the lesser known Luis Buñuel films, um, Republic of Sin. Um, right. But so like she was just so involved in like this is like, you know, she was one of those actresses at this time that's making oh, six, seven movies a year, right? It's like very classical studio style where it's like, you know, it's hard to do. But like her big thing, and I think it's very, very pointed in this film as well, is that she was the Mexican other, um, right? She has a darker complexion. She sort of um, always seems to um, call back to Mexico's uh, indigenous past in a lot of ways. And so she's kind of always playing these fish out of water within a broader Mexico society. And of course, we get that in sense here that she is this mysterious woman. Uh, as we learn, she has some sort of origins in Europe that seem unknown, whether she's meant to be Jewish or not. Um, I think is also tied up in just like understanding and knowledge of the Holocaust in 1948 when this film came out. Um, but I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. questions. And I think, you know, thinking of this as just like another genre B movie, uh, I guess a movie because of the stars, but another genre film that was just one of many produced in 48 is, you know, why I was interested in kind of exploring this, even if we couldn't necessarily understand every detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very interested right off the start because they, they obviously, you know, I knew right away we were going into a Mexican noir and I was not expecting the espionage and the wartime element, um, which, I mean, obviously at, on some level, a lot of the noirs did have, you know, um, uh, wartime themes and were dealing with the war and, and people coming back from it in, in certain subject matter. But I was very interested to get this idea of 
um, how largely the presence of the film was, I think, in from what I could glean from the subtitles, they were talking about how a post-war Mexico felt invaded by, as they put it, a cosmopolitan way. This kind of, um, this sense of bougie uh, sort of culture and also an industrialization and they talk about the idea that, you know, they welcomed a lot of refugees from the war to their soil because of, as they put it, their diverse cultures and hearts. But also at the same time, there were people who uh, were invested in war as any other business. And that Mexico also, because of its industrialization, had a lot of businessmen. So this was the rise of a lot of different, um, you know, uh, uh, people's wealth. And it was interesting to see this from the point of view of, you know, um, Maria Felix's character who, you know, she is like very briefly early on, you actually kind of think that the, um, the rich man played by Fernando Soller, I guess his character's name is Don Esteban Valesco. You think that he is actually kind of like the character we're following mm-hmm. briefly in the opening scene of the, right. in, in the film, as it kind of replicates similarly with Phantom Thread. There's, you know, there's yeah. a scene at the bar where the guy is entranced by the mysterious woman who's uh, sitting nearby. And it was very interesting to get this idea of immediately it investigating sort of like the class and the high society um, element and, you know, hearing them have, you know, blatant conversations about, you know, tanks kill people, stocks go up in value. And it, it's something that you don't necessarily, like, obviously there's been noirs that have talked about well, war profiteers. We're going to be talking about one uh, next week, actually, as well. Um, but it was just something interesting I didn't quite expect to see in this film right off the start. And then to bring in Sophia's character, who kind of has uh, a role from what I could glean that reminded me a little bit of like sort of like Mar- a Marlene Dietrich kind of role mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in, in something like Dishonored is what it kind of reminded me of a little bit uh, where you get that kind of, again, similar to Phantom Thre- uh, Lady, you get this idea of she is going to be the character who is making the moves. She's not necessarily the one who has the most power or the most control as she's infiltrating a lot of rich men with a lot of power, but she is the one who in the sequences is going to be doing the manipulating who is going to be trying to take some form of control and i think that you know the actual sequences where she ends up doing that become very interesting and it was anyway it was a very um a historical and political context they didn't quite expect and then to fuse that with sort of again this sort of feminist subversion of who is going to be the lead character in this kind of story um i I think that it really works yeah and i think this film kind of almost slides in the way that, you know, um, it kind of, you know, noir is this post-constructed genre in a lot of ways. And I really, really recommend to anyone reading, um, and uh, full disclosure, because I helped work and research on it, um, David Bordwell's book, Reinventing Hollywood, about 1940s uh, narrative and cinematograph- uh, cinematographic techniques. And he doesn't argue this in the book, but it's sort of the underlying thesis of the book is that every genre went through what we recognize as noir in terms of switching narratives, in terms of voiceover, in terms of character psychology being very different. And so I think, you know, this film in a lot of ways is almost like closer to maybe something like Daisy Kenyon from Otto Preminger or, um, 
oh, I'm going to forget there's this great film with Robert Ryan and Ida Lupino that where they're um, stuck in a house uh, somewhere. Um, it's not on Dangerous Ground. It's a different film. Um, but anyways, right, the women's picture really becomes a film noir in the 1940s in so many ways. And, like, you know, I think, you know, you could argue that um, – Phantom Laning is also a women's picture. And this is a women's picture that also just has these crime elements, but it's also like the, you know, romance, melodrama, who's control, I'm missing a child, right? Like all these genre tropes are just being kind of fueled through this more, um, as you just point, this interesting political period that the film introduces us in voiceover that sort of like, you know, has these sort of threads of Mexican nationalism, right? Like that, like we need to Mm -hmm. return to a more, you know, uh, clean Mexico that ha- you know that does away with the influences Europe essentially in a way because they only bring yeah. crime and uh, pain. But yeah, also the war profiteering is not exactly a well-known character in American noir even in a lot of ways because that would have been seen as anti-American and you know Mexico um, doesn't have a real strong role in World War II um, from my understanding of history, which I should know because I teach history, um, but we don't think of Mexico's <laughs> role in World War II so much. So I think there was more place for critique even after the war than I think we certainly see in American film. Yeah. Well, we're, we're introduced to Sophia, who she is a basically a, a singer at a local club and she she has a night with this uh, Don Valesco who is sort of like this uh, rich entrepreneur who has business ties uh, presumably to uh, people who are into some more nefarious um, business deals and um, Valesco kind of like opens up about his his loneliness to her and I was actually surprised at how much it reminded me of the <laughs> opening scene of Phantom Lady where it's just two lonely yeah. people meet at a bar yeah. and they express that to one another and um you know she she has a one night out with him she even rests her head on his shoulder while he's driving her home and uh she arrives home and because up until this point uh once again we kind of just assume that this could just be another uh, you know, as a sort of like romantic opening sequence. And, but when she makes her way home, she is actually offered, um, or confirmed to have received her contract to get information about supply material reports, presumably about, uh, war profiteers for $50,000. And we now understand that, you know, part of this was, you know, hoping that, you know, one of the rich guys who's, you know, involved with these guys would notice her, and that, you know, she is actually going to make her way in and um, get get some reports for some third party people who are going to pay for it. And, and the- large parts of this film then are her just, you know, making her way in at, and, and accepting the role of, you know, sort of a wife of the local rich guy hanging out in the beautiful villa. Yeah. <laughs> and there's. That great shot, I think, when uh, they first go to her apartment and uh, we get the shot inside, right, of the gun it out in the mysterious shadow character and then you know luckily yeah. he fi- he doesn't enter the space uh and you know he is too much of a gentleman to enter and that's what essentially saves his life at that point yeah yeah well and i i like too that there is immediately we're introduced kind of like a bit of a moral quandary on her part where that she obviously she 
uh, as is revealed over the course of the film, we know that she has a very um, personal stake in, you know, a kind of um, revenge way against war profiteers who, who um, you know, might have uh, profited off her time in, in the camps. But at the same time, there is, I'm not sure I would say something genuine, but there's something about this idea of Valesco's like, he, he, he seems like a pretty charming kind of unassuming yeah. guy, uh, by, by the end of the film, I mean, maybe with more detail in, you know, if someone did, did, did clearer subtitles, I would understand, but I didn't even get the idea that maybe he was necessarily the guy. No, uh, she was actually the... trying to get the guys kind of around him is what it felt yeah, like. I felt bad and then she kind of, and then she, <laughs> and then she kind of, she ultimately kind of feels bad. Yeah. Um, I, I about believe it's it. his um, undersecretary. Which is an interesting dynamic. I believe it's his undersecretary who's ultimately um, diverting profits away towards some of these more seedy underbellies. And he um, doesn't seem to be aware of it particularly or that, you know, like you get this sequence early in the film, right? When we still think that he is the, the protagonist of the film, Esteban is the protagonist, between like these two men in his life, his or like his two kind of best friends, one being the psychologist and one being this guy who's really kind of more pro-war. And right, they have a debate essentially about the war. Um, and it yes. seems to be that like, right, it's playing the in and on and he's kind of in the middle and a little more um, just unsure of his role in what he should be doing as someone who's rich. So it's, I, I don't think it's clear that he's necessarily explicitly profiting from the war as much as it's his undersecretary who's diverting bills that way. Right. And, and, and he's just the way in. And what I find is so interesting is that she ends up, you know, being kind of troubled by that. I mean, obviously there, this, this goes to some places where a couple of these characters and end up dying in, in kind of some pretty brutal ways. Um, and you know, I was surprised that, you know, sort of like the back third of the film is kind of her being upset about kind of like the ugly actions she has had to take to get some sort of semblance of, of closure or the, the title implies a little bit of a religious salvation as well, as well as the ending, um, that she, and I, I found that that, you know, a little bit more morally interesting, even than you know, where we kind of started at the beginning of the film. Um, and I, even though I did enjoy too, a lot of the sort of like undercover sequences that we get there, there's one in particular that I found just on a visual level. Again, I couldn't quite tell exactly what the (laughs) specifics of the deal was that was happening in the scene, but the filmmaking itself had me a little bit tense. Um, I'm thinking of the scene where, uh, you know, her, her new husband, Valesco, and his uh, sort of like uh, understudy, as, as Peter mentioned, are having a deal at the table. And she uh, was in the library before yeah. that. I think she's searching for some of the reports and she finds that uh, he's got them in like a leather briefcase that he t- then takes to the meeting. It's actually she's, and that she part, is searching for the receipt for the bracelet because she wants to sell the bracelet um, because if she gets right. the money, then she can get her daughter, uh, who we learn is currently still in a concentration camp. It's not clear exactly when this film's taking place, but I believe it's happening. It must be happening during the war. And this other mysterious woman says, if you, you know, give me enough money, I'll get your daughter out of the concentration camp and send her to Lisbon, which, you know, of course is another one yeah, of these see, cosmopolitan but, cities. Between the three of us, we're going to get this film a hundred percent. 
<laughs> but I, but I, I, I love that sequence where they are at the dinner table and they don't suspect that anything's going on, and we are kind of stuck with her as she is trying to get that receipt out of the briefcase. And that bit where she goes to open the briefcase and the zipper gets stuck. And she's looking over at them as they're still chatting, not noticing. And, and she's just walking by the table. And she was only walking by basically like cleaning up food off the table and stuff like that. And when that zipper got stuck, like I was like, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> they do. So I, I, I do subscribe to Peter's theory that if a film can get you to do that when you don't even know what's happening. <laughs> yeah. That there's, you know, there, 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 there's something right going on yeah. for sure. I mean, I think this is just such a great Maria Felix performance. She has such an energy and mysteriousness. And I think Josh, yeah, you bring up Dishonored and, you know, Marlena Dietrich. And like, I think, you know, she's very much in that vein. And I mean, I also think about how the character is allowed to have this like PTSD, right? We see two sequences, yeah. at least yeah. in the film, one where I think some cop cars are going by or something and she immediately freezes and falls into Esteban and then later um, they're listening to um, Esteban's daughter loves Chopin and they're listening to a Chopin concert on the radio um, and then suddenly there's uh, it, like radio footage of the war and uh, it suddenly just immediately takes her back to being in whether it's supposed to be Germany or France or whatever it's you know not clear at all and you know she collapses essentially because she relives her memories of the war and you know that's usually something we don't associate with female characters we see it a lot with um male characters coming back from the war american gis um certainly in a lot yeah. of film noirs mm -hmm. but this is a rare moment where we actually see the female ptsd yeah that's why i think that this ended up being a a very cool pairing because they they both do sort of like interesting um subversions in that regard and i think that both of them and and why i kind of related this a little bit to marlene dietrich as well is that you know she's a very powerful presence in a lot of the films that she did with joseph von sternberg and i think that a large portion of that is again how much control she has in a given scene and sometimes it can be you know not even necessarily in the plot sometimes it's just the look the way that she will uh you know be so highlighted by the filmmaking to almost like overpower the rest of the scene which is very obviously important in a film where characters are getting uh in, in, entranced by her in in certain ways and i what i found really interesting was the dynamic once this is formed of she's already made her way you know uh she's already been proposed to she's already made her way into the husband's inner circle and i i did find it interesting the her dynamic with his sort of like second in command character um who you know he is also someone who's used to very clearly manipulating the boss and he can kind of sense that a little bit in her um, there's this awesome bit where, uh, obviously he's also entranced by her and he actually makes a pass at her at one point. Oh yeah. Um, and she obviously re rejects him and she has this great rejection line where she says, you know, I won't tell him about this and in his eyes you will remain his best friend. She's basically just straight up saying, I will not tell him about this past that you made and we will forget this. And, you know, these are the two people who are trying to control him, trying not to make him very upset and making a, you know, doing something erratic. Um, but immediately after that, she goes in and she actually uh, basically has a phone call. I can't remember if it's with her contact or if it's with the woman about the bracelet, but she basically lets her guard down to have this, you know, this undercover business conversation on the husband's phone. And he overhears that conversation and he immediately goes, oh, she's also playing some sort of game here yeah. alongside with me. And when she comes back out, he has this great retort line where he says, 
and you will remain his perfect wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just it's just one of those things where like the the image that these two characters are playing for this guy to manipulate him both sort of like contend with each other and that becomes really important because you know he ends up kind of suggesting i think that she he's a hundred percent cool with it but he's basically like you play the role of my perfect wife now and you know we will create this perfect accidental situation and yeah, that you know, there's there's a little bit of subplot about about the daughter and a little bit about the bracelet, but ultimately it does become a little bit of this dynamic between these two men who are both in love with her and both want her to play this role for them, and they literally end up killing themselves <laughs> basically yeah. uh, over her, and that it that that scene where the, you know she is taken out on the boat with him and she starts realizing what he meant when he was saying you know the things like the idea of of a perfect accident and he literally pushes uh valesco out of the boat and that wasn't enough he decided he was gonna dive in and also strangle him while he's drowning which i thought was just so over the top he really wanted so visually interesting i have never seen like someone dive in to strangle someone who was already drowning yeah it really expresses like uh a real hatred (laughs) and a real determination (laughs) to want to end somebody's life it's it's pretty it was pretty wild yeah it's kind of hard to follow who's killing who and what the point and of course we get like the whole sequence that follows out of it where the Dr. Mario, the sort of psychologist who knows her backstory to an extent and, you know, has hidden it from everyone, has also followed them and, you know, is an amateur filmmaker and films the whole sequence, uh, which is just <laughs> yeah. another wild twist in this movie. I mean, this movie has so many twists that it's like, like, it makes it doubly hard to follow because it's like it doesn't <laughs> even have a... You know, we're already struggling through language uh, issues, but it's like, wait, who's twisting who? Who's doing this? I mean, there's a great sequence where (laughs) with the bracelet when um, Ernesto has, you know, confronts her about it. And then, you know, she slaps him, but then they embrace anyways because she has to have sex with him. If that's the because he says something like, you know, my the price of my silence is not money or something like that. No DNA. Yeah, not paid in Uh, money is what he says. Yeah. But yeah, I think and then well, and and what's so interesting about that is like obviously that's a horrifying thing, uh, but but what she says after she slaps him is incredible and so powerful. She goes, "Now charge me or something." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think it's like it's just the whole idea of like you know having. I mean, I always just think it's really interesting when we have psychologists as characters, obviously, because as Freudian um, ideas are becoming more popular and you see this like, I mean, obviously, I think the the key film to this is the, um, oh, the Hitchcock film with um, Ingrid Bergman um, and, oh, which film am I thinking about? It's got the... Spellbound, okay. Um, like Spellbound that, you know, have psychologists as characters to sort of create more... Um, well-rounded characters who can have these scars of the past and, you know, like exist in these strange spaces. And I think it just kind of adds to this mystery of like, who is this character? What is this character's motivation? What are they going to (coughs) do? Will they, excuse me, will they be actually be able to get back their daughter? Unfortunately, spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. Um, And uh, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just, 
it's interesting to, to like you know try and follow these, especially these like great star texts that are like so focused on like making the most beautiful woman go through hell. Yeah, for real. Like I th- having that sequence in the in the water where the two men uh, drown each other was already, you know, there, there's a lot of trauma, a lot of depression there already. And then to have all those sequences after where, you know, she, it's found out that the guy filmed the murder. So th- they have kind of an emotional uh, scene where he decides to, to burn it and, and not uh, not turn her in. And then she finds out, I believe, that her, her family has, has died uh, in, the, in the camps. And so that she has no one to actually give the the money or, or whatever she has acquired to, she, she, it's just, uh, the, you know, the, her whole plan is basically just crumbled uh, because of, of the, of the mm-hmm. one thing she actually yeah, cared she, about. She, she, she was basically going to disrupt, you know, the, the people who were prof- profiting off of the war, and she was going to use that money to actually help the victims of the war. Right. That seems to be sort of like how she was sort and of like logically translating... Yeah, yeah. So like so like that that's what it it feels like her mission was and how she saw it as almost like a and a you know again the sort of like religious salvation how she was going to right a wrong. And what's so interesting is that over the course of the film, you know, she's had to do I guess she views it as so many wrongs, but there was a logic to it. There was a I'm doing this for some sort of good and then it's so devastating when that good obviously like can't actually come to fruition and then she's sitting there kind of wondering why she did what she did almost in some way where she's just like this guy that just really loved me and wasn't necessarily a terrible person died the people who I was trying to help can't be helped and now I'm just sitting here with all of this money and I believe she actually just gives that money all to the daughter right Uh, well not her daughter it's like an orphan not her daughter yeah yeah Oh well, I, I thought she gave it to the um, the husband. Oh, she gives it. So yeah, just, the 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 husband's oh, okay. money that she got, she marries into. Uh, you know, all that money she gives away to the daughter. She says like that can all yeah, just go to yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was. Thinking. And then it's like the final sequence at the end where you know she goes to the this large bridge in Mexico City, and it looks like she might throw herself off, and because Mexico is an extremely Catholic country, she hears church bells. Uh, which convince mm-hmm. her that uh, maybe she should not. And then she sees an orphan child and gives a bunch of money. I don't know what if it's clear which money that is or if that's a specific plot money as much as a bunch of money. But she decides that she can right. still theoretically do good in this world and not throw herself into uh, into the <laughs> river. Yeah, yeah, and 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 she does that too because I I love the speech that she gives to the one guy the the guy who is like an amateur filmmaker who films you know the very ugly action that happened on that boat that we see, and uh, she says something along the lines of you know all of my actions since arriving here have been so cold and premeditated even even in in marriage which is something that should be warm and 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 loving in a sense, and I I found it just so interesting I think she said something along the lines of that she's been a, a, a victim of adversity and a product of this dark age. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she even asks to be turned in. She says, can you hand me over uh, to justice? I am a full out like accessory to the murder of essentially an innocent man. And it just feels wrong despite the fact that this is, you know, obviously she, she's doing a good thing. Um, and I, I found that just like that made its way 
to me through the filmmaking, even if, you know, again, the, the convoluted plot plus some of the translation issues on what exactly was happening in that convoluted plot didn't make it all the way in. But I found that her performance, especially in that scene when she's talking to the filmmaker, like very strong. Yeah, I was able to understand her story like perfectly in, in that sense. Like mm-hmm. the, the certain plot points obviously were I, I have no fucking clue here and there. But uh, <laughs> but her overall arc and, and story, I really felt like I understood. I mean, she played it so well, like just the, the strength that she has as a character and then also to have those those breaking moments of the PTSD were really impressive. Uh, like she Maria mm-hmm. definitely carries this 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 whole thing. Not to say that everyone else in it is bad. It's just that I felt like I was really attached to her and I could really understand the story even throughout the lack of communication with her. So yeah. she was really and, and she really she really gets across those complex emotional ideas without even needing the words to do it. Yeah, which is really absolutely. impressive. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is like, I mean, this is what Phil Max was like really known for. They also had Contiflos. It's like, they do star vehicles and right. Like this is just a star vehicle through and through. Um, and it just mm-hmm. like, you know, builds around, like we have the greatest actor in terms of our lot and our capacity in the Spanish language. Like we need to build films that like show off. And especially like so many of these roles. I mean, Maria Felix was known for a lot of torturous, um, uh, affairs, marriages, things like she, you know, she mm. went through as much hell in a real life as she does in this film. And, you know, I think that blurring of reality and fiction uh, was something the studio loved playing on and loved, you know, putting her in these circumstances that they could play off. And, you know, this is true of a lot of, um, you know, great actors of any era. Okay. I was going to say that's that that's very uh, Judy Garland of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> D- Definitely. Nice. Well, pivoting towards the reductive rating round, this this one, um, I mean, I, I, I think that if this got restored and it got translated and I could pick up even more, I think it would be even higher. But this is a high three for me. Yeah. Um, I, I think that with, with a little bit more um, detail, I'd get even more out of it. But I definitely, you know, again, the, the sort of convoluted nature of just the sometimes the noir genre in general uh and then also you know dealing with sort of like youtube auto translation um i there, there was some stuff in this that i that i missed that might even make it more complex but i i still think overall that again it's a really neat little mexican espionage noir and it has a cool historical context where the you know what you would normally assume as the femme fatale character um who again a lot of in a lot of noir is painted as um sort of morally confused in kind of a negative way this one is up front that she is you know presumably a concentration camp survivor of some sort and um you know is is looking for some sort of righteous salvation and you know she infiltrates the rich warmongers who profited off her you know in in order to do that and you know she just ends up finding um essentially more ugliness and she's very hurt by that and i think that uh you know uh maria felix really gets that across in her performance and i found this more morally complex than i thought i could have based (laughs) on what i was able to actually like find see what she was saying but even in the few moments where i could see what she was saying like again that the scene that really stuck with me was when the guy is basically like you know you are going to have sex with me in order to you know, um, you know, get to get this bracelet. 
And she is obviously very offended by that. And you have the obligatory scene where, where she slaps him and she's very upset, but she immediately dominates that conversation and goes, now charge me. And I was like, if there are just more scenes or more moments like that, that I would get with clearer translation, yeah. I think that her character would just be even richer. Uh, but as is t- totally, totally works for me. So yeah, high three. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's, it's a, it's at a three as well. Um, it's really just the, the, the language barrier. I just would really like to see this thing restored and, and have full translation. Um, just so I could know every little small detail. Cause like you said, Josh, with like noirs, they can be pretty convoluted and plotting and all that. So it, uh, I, I was finding myself a little frustrated here and there, just trying to, trying to latch on to the story. Uh, but Maria's performance is incredibly strong. Um, you know, that once again, her contrast from just like this very strong kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, this this espionage vibe to her going through like the PTSD through all the trauma of the concentration camp. Uh, very complicated character, and um, and honestly, I didn't I didn't expect all the all the nuances to come from that ending with with both of them drowning each other, and then her being basically left to deal with that, and also being not only left to deal with that trauma, but then her entire plan kind of crumbles because of that. And, and then finding out her family's yeah. gone. And, just, and just essentially feeling like a murderer. That's what reminded yeah. me so much too, of like a Marlene Dietrich kind of role too, is that there's so many moments where, you know, she's wrestling with having, you know, uh, taking control and also having real feelings and like these cold passionless kind of like overall machines of death basically. Yeah. And yeah. So this idea of like her being in control and the motivating presence of scenes and making decisions and then realizing, you know, that so many of those decisions have gone wrong and you know, they've, they've had uglier qualities. Yeah. I think she nails that. And I also really like uh, small little details that they do with uh, the, the screen plan directing. Like I did really like that sequence where she, there's a moment where she's hiding because uh, she was speaking to somebody, and then when this man walks in, there's this small little moment where he notices a cigarette with like red lipstick on it or something like that. And there's just small little cool things like that that really helped me <laughs> kind of understand visually what was happening. <laughs> uh, so, so that was that was nice and that was helpful. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I would just love to see this thing restored so I could really fully understand it. But right now, it's still a three, and that's I think impressive on its own because. I mean, I couldn't understand 80% of the dialogue in this thing. So, you know, yeah. I, pretty impressive. I mean, I think, I think your point about being able to, you know, follow details is just a sign of a great director who knows how to, you know, follow yeah. in the model of what great filmmaking should do in terms of just, like, making you aware of what's important and pointing that way. Yeah, I'm at a three as well. Like, I'll say, like, I think, you know, not just I would like to see this film restored, but, you know, I think there's some really great work being done by the Film Noir Foundation, by World Cinema Foundation. Uh, I was just thinking about, like, uh, there's another thriller from 43 called Another Dawn that's a spy thriller between political um, crooked politicians and labor activists that I've seen that's really good that also has a really great female protagonist. Um, God, there's so many. There's, uh, I've, I mean, I mentioned Chris Ucolo, Night Falls, Salon Mexico. There's all these great film noirs of Mexico that, you know, it's just still hard to see, especially in our time of quarantine where, like, people aren't even playing them on 35-millimeter prints that are available with, you know, subtitles. Um, And I think it's just one of those things that's, like, I think, you know, opening our horizons, there's so many more noir films 
out there beyond just what was going on in Hollywood. And it's, I think, really exciting to see them all and like to see the different ways that countries are tackling them, that are developing them. And so even if this isn't, you know, I would say this is not the best of the ones I've seen. It just helps me open up and see the different modes and models of filmmaking. And like I always said, like, I'd love to do a course where I teach the history of Hollywood only using Spanish language films. And like I could easily teach this film in that kind of sense, like because I think it's so much talks about what are the transformations that are happening not just in Mexico but around the world that are influencing and creating the idea of this you know new genre that we all recognize and that's really cool all right well I think that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode that was uh phantom lady and may god forgive me thanks so much peter for bringing these um films with you thank you um if you've if you've got anything to plug this is where we usually have you do that Oh, man. I mean, I'm just uh, right now and I'm working on some research. Uh, I mean, I'll have uh, the thing is, I'll have some stuff next year and some articles. I just um, I guess I'll say I just uh, had an article accepted into the journal Film History, which is about um, uh, Ida Lupino's financier of her independent films and how he actually is the reason that Hollywood became reconglomerated. So it's an interesting tale of uh, capital triumphing art at every cost. It's sort of a, uh, a true Annie hero story. Um, that will be out probably in about six months because academia is very slow as things go out. But um, <laughs> please uh, check out my podcast, Framing Media. It's um, If you're interested in sort of more historical scholarship in terms of people who are really on the cutting edge of how we understand the moving image, whether that's film, radio, television, um, the new media, um, this is a podcast I'm doing that's really um, trying to make scholarship more accessible. So like I know people think, oh, academia is just a lot of heavy theories, big words, not necessarily. This is about kind of um, reopening the uh, the story. So actually, just to mention, mm-hmm. one of the upcoming episodes will be an, uh, an interview with uh, Christine Lane, the author of Phantom Lady, The History of Joan Harrison. Um, there was a recent episode about the 1941 investigations into Hollywood by the Senate that were really driven by anti-Semitism and the American First Movement. Um, lots of really different, interesting ways of looking at um, films, moving images, media, what have you. And so um, that's, it's technically nice. at the cinephilic net still but if you search my last name in framing media you'll find it that awesome. sounds great well definitely check that out i'm very excited about that episode so i'm definitely going to be checking that out uh but for our listeners we're going to be back in uh one week's time we're going to be continuing uh noir vember and uh we figured that we would for the first time on the show we would take a look a little bit at orson wells because yeah you know, mank everyone's <laughs> talking about mank um <laughs> And, uh, you know, we figured we'd get, we'd get in on it. And, uh, so we're going to talk about, and unfortunately there's not a lot of Orson Welles that, uh, uh, counts, I think, uh, too much, at least from his, uh, his, his directorial standpoint, we could have done touch of evil. And, uh, at some point we will definitely do touch of evil, but for this one, we decided we were going to stick to some forties Orson Welles closer to the time. Yeah. Uh, that Mank will actually be taking place. So we're going to talk about um, his uh, kind of butchered and controversial noir lady from Shanghai from 1948. And then we're going to be talking about the, uh, the, the film school classic, respecting the classics like our friends at Extended Clip like to say. <laughs> we're going to be talking about Carol Reed's The Third Man, which has uh, one of 
the most famous uh, cameos by Orson Welles that there is. So we're going to be talking yeah. about his on-screen presence and a little bit of his behind-the-screen presence as well with Lady from Shanghai. Um, and then in two weeks' time, we are going to be back with uh, special guest Anna Swanson. She is going to be uh, kind of bridging the gap between the end of Noir November and moving into there's no theme for December. December's whatever. So that's <laughs> yeah. why I said she could do whatever she wanted. We try but to she just have to continue. a movie with a scene of Christmas lights and like that's it. That's the closest. Yeah, near the have. end somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Anna is going to be bringing on uh, the film Silent Partner with Elliot Gold, I believe, and then she's also going to bring on Martin Scorsese's uh, remake of Cape Fear from 1991. Awesome. So th- that is what we're going to be talking about in two weeks' time. Uh, but thanks, as always, for listening, guys. It's going to wrap it up for everything this week. And keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.